Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to the Sportsman's Voice Podcast, your inside connection to the outdoor legislation. From the beltway to policy happening your way, we're covering it all. I'm your host, Fred Bird. Join us as we explore public land access, wildlife and fisheries management, Second Amendment rights, the triumphs that shape our nation, the sports we all love, and the stories that fuel our passion for the great outdoors. This is the Sportsman's Voice Podcast. That's right. This is the Sportsman's Voice Podcast. I am your host, Fred Bird. Thanks so much for tuning in. Before we get to this week's guest, let us check in on the stories happening across the nation with this week's TSV Roundup. Welcome, everybody, to this edition of the Sportsman's Voice Roundup featuring wildlife as stakeholders in Washington State, trouble on the horizon for striped bass in the Mid-Atlantic, the possibility of a Louisiana black bear season, and why license fee increases are a good thing. Diving in. In Washington State, the Department of Fish and Wildlife Commission is kicking around the idea of granting wildlife or non-human life as stakeholders on the commission. This is uh, the sportsman's community in Washington has supported the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife for many years. And unfortunately, with recent commission appointments, things are, things are getting topsy-turvy over there. This is concerning for a number of reasons, but I mean, this really seems to be an end around from unfriendly forces that are looking to subvert our traditions, our North American model of wildlife management, how we, you know, manage their resource on the ground. There, there is some cases in the past, the Connecticut Public Act 1630 was known as, is known as Desmond's Law. And it allowed for neglected animals to be represented by a human who acts as their advocate. So I suppose if someone's dog was, was deemed neglected or, you know, whatever, fill in the blank, Connecticut passed that and that that's in place. So what it, so if you get, uh, HSUS in there or PETA and are they going to call a whitetail neglected when it's harvested legally and, and by prescription from the state agency. This is concerning and definitely needs to be watched and tracked. And if you're in Washington state, the Northwest uh, in, re- in recent has, has been seeing an increase of, of, of rhetoric and, and, and calls for bans on, on hunting and fishing outright. This seeks to uh, undermine 
our model of wildlife management, and it's certainly dangerous to do so. Washington State, you're on the clock. I'd be, uh, I'd be dialed into this, and and quite frankly, all all over the West, this is a this seems to be a a negative trend. Moving over to the East Coast, new survey of young striped bass continues to point to trouble for the Atlantic fishery. This is consistent and unfortunate. They the ambiguous they um, instituted emergency slot limits this year up and down the, the Atlantic coast for striped bass. Reduce it to one a day for, for the wrecks, wreck fishing. Uh, one a day, it was a slot of 28 to 31, so everything tw- under 28 inches had to be tossed back. 31 and over had to be tossed back. And this was an effort to allow for recreational catch to, to live, the, to prevent fish from dying when they were put back in with that age class. So in May, that was done by the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries and Commissions. And recently, the Maryland Department of Natural Resources released the 2023 Juvenile Striped Bass Survey results, which indicated that the 2023-year class of striped bass was one of the lowest on record. Not good. In a press release on October 12th, Maryland DNR stated that the weather conditions over the past several winters have not been conducive to the success of striped bass reproduction in the bay and has played a significant role in the decline of the population. That's where, that's the nursery down there. That's where all the baby striped bass turn into, turn into those, those monster cows that, that a lot of us that fish for them uh, covet. So certainly a point of concern there. While environmental variables are a major factor in the survival of young fish, concerns over the number of striped bass. They're both harvested, and those that die after the release in the recreational and commercial fisheries will likely lead to additional regulatory changes in the 2024 fishing season. Certainly that's a bummer if you're, uh, if you like getting after those stripers. I know here in New England, we certainly do. You start watching that migration, that northern migration, March, April, and they start cruising up. And uh, oh, coincides with our spring turkey season. So, affectionately, I, t- I call it, and others do the the springtime surf and turf. And it's a great it's a great way to get get into the summer and the fishing season, and you know everything that comes with that. So, you know, you hate to see you hate to see the um, the fishery in trouble like that because it is it's such a tradition, and there's a lot of business around that too. So, what I guess what I'm getting to is I think the most of us that appreciate and, and and value the resource would be the first ones to stand up and say, Hey, let's, let's get this right. Um, and let's get that, that fishery healthy. So more to come on that. We certainly hope the answers we seek, uh, can be good solutions there. Down to Louisiana, black bear season could be on the horizon. Louisiana black bear is one of the greatest wildlife conservation success stories in Louisiana. Louisiana has not held a black bear hunt in the state since the 1980s. However, there are now harvestable surpluses of black bear in specific black bear, black bear management areas, BMAs. With the increase of populations over the past several years, reports of human bear conflict have risen, prompting the state to consider options to help curtail a problem while continuing the success of their black bear recovery efforts. This is this is not a terrible problem to have. Well, the human bear conflicts are a bad problem, but when you, 
I mean, the conservation efforts on the ground in Louisiana, they've done their job to get the population back up to harvestable numbers. That's great. That's mission complete. So now let's, let's put the resource to work. Let's let uh, Louisiana hunters and, and even non-resident hunters, if possible, get in there and, and help manage it. Uh, hunters, as we often say, are the best wildlife management uh, managers on the ground willing to pay to, to contribute to that. Obviously, at the, the direction and discretion of the state agency. I know up, up in the Northeast, uh, New Jersey, Connecticut, uh, recently have had issues with the same uh, black bear human conflicts. Connecticut had an opportunity, punted, did not institute a, a limited black bear hunt, again, in specific counties. Uh, New Jersey, after a number of years of going back and forth, uh, starting a season, emergency closing, they finally uh, came around recently, and uh, it was a prior uh, Sportsman's Voice article, uh, a five-year uh, black bear season was instituted. So, again, the best way to manage them is to do that. So, uh, I, t- I guess it's a tip of the cap to the, the managers, the wildlife manager- managers in Louisiana, and hopefully that's a, that's a, that's a opportunity for for folks in louisiana to to enjoy that would be fantastic and this is some of the finest table fare you'll ever have good stuff there in louisiana why license fee increases are a good thing so let's go here year after year the cost associated with natural resource management as with all things continues to increase lord is that not false given the user pay public benefits framework of the american system of conservation funding Ensuring that license prices keep up with inflation helps the state fish and wildlife agencies continue their work of providing quality recreational opportunities while successfully managing their state's public trust resources. Recognizing this, Congressional Sportsman's Foundation supports opportunities to ensure sustain, sustainability of sportsman-led funding for conservation throughout the nation. Got to keep up with the times. Got to be able to... Uh, afford to put this good work on the ground and we're all feeling it recently in nebraska the nebraska game and park commission approved regulatory changes to increase the price of several non-resident deer antelope and turkey licenses price increases in nebraska will take effect in the new year 2024 the kansas department of wildlife parks is also considering a regulation change needed to increase the price of several non-resident licenses. Kansas is also in the process of finalizing regulatory change that would remove the fee for resident disabled veterans hunting and fishing license as a result of House Bill 2039 being signed into law early this year. The mission has to be funded, and oftentimes uh, state agencies go for many number of years. Without the increases, uh, the sticker shock comes at a at a bit of a negative feeling but everyone seems to adjust just fine and we see the benefits of it so not all horrible there and here in nebraska what what we're talking about these are increases on on non-residents so resident hunters and anglers are not really feeling this so visitors coming in looking to hunt turkey and deer they're going to help help that state so more to come that is it for this edition of the Sportsman's Voice Roundup. We're going to get into our show 
This week, Taylor Schmitz, Director of Federal Policy at CSF, joins us to talk about recent wins on Capitol Hill, looking forward uh, to the current session. Now that things have opened back up in the House, hopefully able to advance some positive legislation for the sporting community. Got a new speaker. Touch on all that with Taylor. A couple moments. Here we go. All right. Good deal. So we are we're rolling on everything here. So um, joining us today, as mentioned, uh, Taylor Schmidt is joining us, our director of federal policy at Congressional Sportsman's Foundation. Taylor, thanks for carving out the time of being on the program today. How are you? Brad, I'm doing well. Um, appreciate you making time in your busy schedule. Um, it's a pleasure to be here and looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, for sure. So in recent episodes, we've, we've uh, gone to the state level stuff. We've, we've covered some uh, special events we have here at CSF. But recently we had a huge win and I thought it was uh, the timing was appropriate to bring you on, introduce you to our our audience for the people that, that outside of Capitol Hill that don't know Taylor. Um, and hip them to what you do for CSF, uh, how you're how you're integrated into Capitol Hill, and, and working on behalf of sportsmen and women of this great nation. Um, and then we're gonna we're gonna talk about the big win that we had a little while ago as it as it concerned um, Hunter Ed and archery opportunities in the school system. And we'll get all, into all the minutia on that. But Taylor, first, uh, tell us about your role. How long you've been with us? Give us the uh, the quick resume. Sure. Thanks, Fred. Uh, my name is Taylor Schmidt, as Fred mentioned. Um, I serve as the Director of Federal Relations for the Congressional Sports and Foundation. I've been here for seven years. I actually started here right after college. Um, I remember the time that I first found out that people worked on hunting and fishing policy as a career, and I knew immediately that's what I wanted to do. So I was fortunate enough to have that opportunity upon graduating from college, and I've been at CSF ever since. Um, in my in my capacity at CSF, um, as Fred mentioned, I do all of our federal affairs. That ranges particularly um, working with the bipartisan bicameral Congressional Sportsman's Caucus, which I serve as liaison from the foundation and the um, sporting conservation community to the Congressional Sportsman's Caucus, which is one of, if not the largest bipartisan bicameral caucus on Capitol Hill. Um, additionally, I also work with the federal agency. Um, typically the Department of the Interior, Department of Agriculture, as well as the Department of Commerce on fisheries issues. So anything related to hunting, fishing, trapping, recreational shooting that has a federal nexus, I'm working on it um, in my day job. In addition to your day job and, and, and getting into the, the nitty-gritty of issues down there with all those folks, you also sit on the American Wildlife Conservation Partner forward as the vice chair. Uh, what does that organization talk about it? And then your duties as the vice chair, what is that? What is so that? So the American Wildlife Conservation Partners, or AWCP for short, is a coalition of the nation's leading hunting and wildlife and recreational shooting organizations who really work together um, to build unity and consensus around issues facing sportsmen and women um, across the country. AWCP was founded 22 years ago, and the reason that it was founded is you had all these groups within our community, but there wasn't really any collective unity amongst ourselves, and we recognized that some of the folks that are in our way to advance the things that we care about as sports men and women were really unified, and our community was not. 
So some folks had the bright idea to get everybody together under the umbrella of AWCP and work together on issues of importance to all, right? Um, whether it's turkey hunting, as you and I both love to do, Fred, or duck hunting, or big game hunting in the West, there's some common threads here that all of our organizations and all of the people in our space care about, right? And that's conservation and access. And in order for us to work together to build that mission, we need to be organized. So that's where AWCP comes in. Um, right now, I serve as the vice chair of AWCP. Um, right now, it, we are gearing up for to, to develop our new recommendations for the upcoming presidential administration, known as Wildlife for the 21st Century, or W21. Come January 1st, I will become the chairman of AWCP. So the big thing that I'll be working on throughout that time is developing Wildlife for the 21st Century. And what W21 really is, is just our collective recommendations for the next four years of the presidency, regardless of if, if it's a Republican, Democrat, Green Party, Tea Party in there, doesn't matter. These are going to be our community's priorities for the next four years, but also for the next four years for Congress. So we go through that every four years, as I mentioned, and really examine our victories, examine our shortfalls, look at what opportunities exist, and again, work on this document together to say, here are our top 10 or so priorities as the hunting, wildlife conservation, and recreational shooting community. Um, and that really serves as our blueprint for the next four years. In our well, that's fantastic. And with your leadership in that position, I, I trust that we're going to be able to advance some some good policy that's the benefit of of everyone in our community. And it's it's great to be able to pull on those common threads and advance uh, the concerns of our community. Uh, and as we well know, our concerns often are the to the benefit of the public at large, whether they know that or not. And we're certainly trying to do a good job to communicate that uh, to the general public that hey. Sportsmen and women, we got your back. Uh, everything you're seeing out on the outdoors and enjoying this time of year, especially, uh, is made possible through through our dollars, through through that federal funding, through our uh, participation uh, in the in the shooting angling sports. So uh, that's that's all great stuff. So so with that, and and as we're recording this here, um, I, some breaking news that's come across is that. Uh, we finally have a speaker of the house. So those things that are, that are, we're wanting to advance, you're wanting to advance as the new chairman. Uh, we got a speaker in, uh, in representative Mike Johnson. So hooray. Now we can turn the lights back on and get things moving for the American people. Right? Yeah, that's exactly right, Fred. And, um, the good news for CSF is that, um, now speaker Johnson is actually a member of the congressional sportsman's caucus. We have an existing relationship with him and his office, and he attends a number of our events throughout the year, including our big banquet in D.C. So we're looking forward to working with him. Um, certainly, yeah, we'll give him a couple of days to get his feet settled, settled and under him, but we'll be going in there pretty quickly to talk about uh, CSF priorities um, for, the, for the rest of this year, um, for the rest of this Congress, and more long-term priorities. Great upside there, and sounds like a, a good win for, for our community. Um, so with AWCP and, and the big talk about that we're having you on today is the bipartisan, uh, safer communities act that resulted in a whole lot of controversy for our community. Um, with AWCP, all the organizations worked together on a, on a large letter and submitted that expressing the displeasure and, and trying to advocate and, and educate 
um, the misinterpretation of um, the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, right? So first, let's talk about BC, uh, BSCA, what that whole giant thing was, and then how we got to ESEA and the misinterpretation of some of the funding mechanisms. Sure. So in June 2022, Congress passed and President Biden signed into law the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, or the BSCA for short. Um, I think as all the listeners know, our community uses no shortage of acronyms, and the BSCA is just another one on that long list. But so the BSCA was largely a response to some of the mass shootings that we've seen across the country. Um, some of the things included in this bill were enhanced background checks, funding for firearm intervention programs, um, funding for various school programs, and then some, some minor changes that kind of slipped through the radar a little bit amongst many people, and that's what, what we're here to talk about today. Um, so it obviously takes a few months or sometimes upwards of a few months for the federal agencies to begin implementing legislation, and that's really where the issue that we're here to talk about today came so in the letter that uh, JWCP submitted, uh, it was stated that the amendments to the ESEA were, were intended to prohibit the use of funds to pay for arming and training of teachers specifically, not ending decades worth of safety training to millions of students, which provided, uh, provided the mental health benefits goes on to talk about uh, the outdoor, the benefits of being in the outdoors. So I guess that was the biggest sticking point was the funding mechanism that, that existed. It got wrapped up in kind of the 40,000 foot view and it was just too broad a stroke and we had to dial this in or you guys had to dial this in. What was that process like? And you know, what was, you know, we're, we're talking about the original intent of that. How did, how did you get them to see that side of it and, and have them come to understand it? Yeah. So I'll just, I'll, I'll add a little bit more color to what the challenge and the specific challenge was here. Right. So when Congress passed legislation, right, bills can be as short as half page. They can be as long as three, 400 pages, right? This bill was fairly lengthy. Um, and when you, when you pass bills, everybody knows the, the saying, right? Read the bill to know what's in it. Um, that was the case here. And so when Congress passed the Bipartisan Safer Community Act, they amended the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, or ESEA, which provides roughly about $18 billion in federal funding for elementary and secondary public schools across the country. When they amended the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, as you mentioned, Fred, the intent was to prohibit ESEA funds from being used for training school resource officers, security personnel, etc. However, because of this, because of the language that they included in the BSDA, which stated a weapon, device, instrument, material, substance, animate, or inanimate that is used for or is readily capable of causing death or serious bodily injury, except that such term does not include a pocket knife with blade of less than two and a half inches. So when Congress amended the ESA, they prohibited ESEA funds from being used for training school personnel in the use of a dangerous weapon. That definition that I just provided is how dangerous weapon is defined. So when you look at that and you take the plain language of that definition, 
it includes everything, certainly the things we care about, archery and schools, school sponsored shooting teams, but also I think you can make a solid argument that it includes anything from lacrosse ball to a Bunsen burner in the, in the science room, um, potentially a pencil, right? If that blade on that pencil or that point on that pencil is longer than two and a half inches, well, now funding could potentially be restricted for that. So the issue that this came about is um, you have the legislative intent, right? And unfortunately, I'm not an I'm not an attorney, right? But words and language and legislation matters. And we don't think through how every single word is going to play out once it's being implemented by somebody that may or may not be familiar with that legislative intent. Things can get south pretty quickly, and you have a number of unintended consequences. And that's exactly what we had here. So when Congress amended the BSEA and included that prohibition on dangerous or training in the use of a dangerous weapon. As I mentioned, archery in schools was now banned. Hunter education was now banned. Wilderness courses, teaching people how to make a fire with just a little hatchet. That was all banned now. Full prompted shooting. So again, this was not the legislative intent by Congress. But when you have that plain language in a piece of legislation, the people implementing this, in this case, the Department of Education, staff of the Department of Education, have to take that plain language as it's written out in the legislation. Sometimes they they don't have the authority or they don't feel comfortable enough because of litigation to follow the congressional intent. So that was really um, what, we're, what we're dealing with. And on the process itself, right, as I mentioned, it takes months um, for legislation to be implemented. So in March of this year, we first heard about this being a challenge in the state of Alaska, where a, a state um, elementary and secondary education outdoor rec coordinator reached out to some folks at the Department of Education, the U.S. Department of Education, and said, hey, we want to use some of the ESEA funds for these programs. Well, the Department of Education came out and said, oh, no, you cannot do that. That is inconsistent with the Elementary and Secondary Education Act because of the bipartisan safer community. So what you will realize is this legislation and federal policy is very nuanced. It's very intertwined. Um, one thing always impacts something else, and it can be a challenge to think through that stuff and what the unintended consequences be. But anyway, so we started going through the process a little bit more, and then first it was Alaska, then it was a couple other states, right? And then it came out, we received an um, email from the Department of Education saying that they were not going to, they could not use plow ESEA funds for the activities that we care about in our Obviously, that, that blew things up at that point and um, caught the attention of our community was already well aware of this. CSF was working behind the scenes with the Department of Education to try and fix this administratively without needing the legislative fix. But given the importance of these programs for students across the country, this obviously blew up and caught the attention of a number of members of Congress. And um, that was really the start of the process. And as media does, if I, I remember right, this was, this really started catching fire uh, mid-summer. Um, and as media tends to do, they take a slant on it. And, you know, one, one headline is the Biden administration is anti-hunter and then all this ballyhoo and, and what it sounds like what you're saying, and I was getting to this, you know, my next question naturally was, well, is this a, a purposeful intent or was this just because they didn't know any better? And it sounds like per usual, they just didn't know. They were just kind of ignorant to 
to the language they were putting in there, well intended, uh, but the the ripple effect was was huge. Uh, you're talking about what you just talked about in Alaska and some of the other programs and and, and the schools that have them, but we're also talking about uh, R three uh, mm-hmm. initiative and and being able to to get in front of kids and and bring them on through our community and and, and just exposing them to that. Um, and then so many kids find find uh, empowerment in in the shooting sports, whether it's archery and you know half the kids out there think they're Katniss Everdeen from Hunger Games, right? Or or they're on a shooting team and this it gives so many other kids that may not be, you know, football, hockey, baseball and climb, but it gives them an opportunity to showcase their skill set without these programs, you know, what what happens to those kids and we mentioned the letter talking that that you guys submitted with AWCP that they're they're a real psychological mental benefits and coming out of covid oh my gosh i can speak as a dad of middle schoolers uh there were real real issues going on that we are still recovering from from those two years of sequestering little kids and remote learning and everything that that was the outdoors and our activities and pursuits provide that relief provide that outlet so it's vitally important that um these these programs continue uh, to be provided and that there's funding for that. So you're going through this process. You talk about it takes a long time, but then pretty quick with great, with great effort and great leadership, it's got turned around uh, way faster than I would have ever thought. Uh, it seemed like one of the couple days. So we'll get to the vote, but then what, what was the response to this was the, the, Protecting Hunting Heritage and Education Act, right? And that was a bipartisan effort that was championed by uh, the Congressional Sportsman's Caucus and and CSF. How did you get from the Safer Communities Act to the Hunting Heritage Act and then ultimately pretty victorious vote? So to answer your question, Fred, I think it's important to go back to the first part that you opened up with, right? The intent here was not to impact the programs that we care about as our community. This was not a malicious effort by anybody in Congress or anybody in the administration to undermine these programs, right? You spoke to the importance of these programs. You know, you have archery in schools, let's just take as an example, right? 1.3 million students roughly participate in that program every single year. 66 to 70% of those students are first-time archers. They've never picked up a bow in their life. So when you're talking about recruitment, this is a critically important program for for young students across the country to get into. Um, the archery in schools is split evenly between male and female, right? This is critical for us to get folks into the outdoors. Um, so, so with all that in mind, and again, recognizing that this was not a malicious decision by Congress to undermine these programs, it was just something that slipped through the cracks because, again, words do matter, and the way that this is being impacted. So once the national national media kind of got behind it and we started reaching out to members of Congress and congressional staff saying this is a really big issue with schools. You know, at this point it was middle of July, schools, some schools, you know, here in the state of Maryland are started the first or second week of August, right? So we said it it's critical that we address this this address issue from the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act as quickly as possible. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So with that, um, on August 1st, Congressman Mark Green out of Tennessee, a Congressional Sportsman's Caucus member, as well as Sportsman's Caucus member Congressman Richard Hudson out of North Carolina, the past co-chair of the Congressional Sportsman's Caucus, introduced the Protecting Hunting Heritage and Education Act. Um, this is a bipartisan bill. As I, I, as I mentioned, um, some bills are 300 pages. This bill was about half a page. And all it did was surgically go in and amend the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, specifically how it impacted the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, just to make it clear that the, the intent here was never to undermine the programs that we were interested in, right? So it, it just surgically went in there, made an exception for um, educational enrichment activities such as archery, hunting, other shooting sports, or culinary arts. So while it doesn't include all the programs that we're specifically focused in, we are we are pretty certain that it's hard for any person to make the argument that any of the programs that we care about are not considered educational enrichment activities, as stated in the legislation. So you can obviously have a laundry list of programs in a bill, but it's important to have broad language in there sometimes so you can wrap everything up that you want. So, so to get back to your question. Um, that bill was introduced on August 1st, as I mentioned. Congress adjourned for their August recess. And we spent that four to six weeks really working over members on both sides of, of the Hill, being the House and the Senate, um, demonstrating to demonstrate the importance of these programs and activities for students across the country. We're met with pretty much no opposition to this. Um, so when Congress returned in September, from their August recess, one of the very first things that they did was pass this bill out of committee. In order for bills to pass committee, as everybody knows, or for bills to pass Congress, they have to move out of their respective committee first, then they go to the floor for a vote, and then if necessary, they go to the other chamber. So on the, the third day that Congress was back in September, they actually passed this bill out of its respective committee unanimously. Um, this is the timing of this is pretty significant, right? As as we've just seen with everything going on in the speaker election and what's going on around the country, um, Congress is really, really crippled right now. When you look at what Congress is passing in the current Congress and compare it to the last divided Congress, it's about a fourth or a fifth of the bills that have passed Congress now as opposed to the last divided Congress. So it was really encouraging for us to see um, the House take the first step in bringing this bill up to committee. Um, but again, it's, it's because these programs are bipartisan, right? This was not a malicious effort by anybody. And they wanted, members of Congress, senators included, wanted to go in and fix this issue as quickly as possible, um, recognizing that many schools were already well underway with their programs throughout the country, um, but it was important to restore this federal funding as quickly. And that's a drone we continue to beat here, right? Is that people on the Hill or in our state capitals, 
they're not necessarily looking to score political punches. It's just they're they just don't know enough. And how can you possibly know everything? You just you just don't. Uh, and that's where CSF comes in. That's that's the drum we're beating, where we are advocating for our community and we're educating on behalf of our community. So you on the Hill, my colleagues on the policy team spread throughout the country, work in the state capitals, that, that's what we serve to do. This isn't a, a gotcha kind of thing. And hey, you, you know, finger wagons. No, here's, did you know your language affects this down the line, A, B, and C? I don't think you wanted to go there. Here's how you can make it better. And, and we serve that purpose. And I think that's, I think that's an unsung uh, for, uh, understanding. And, and, and maybe now more people are coming to understand the, the role of CSF provides it and, and the gaps it yeah that that's exactly right fred and you know we will get into more of the timing and how the bill ended up being signed into law and fixing this issue in a minute i think but you know to your point csf is a nonpartisan policy organization, right all we care about is what's good for conservation what's good for access what's good for the next generation what's good for our outdoor heritage and sportsmen and women and leading conservationists in the country and um, what's unique about CSF is that nonpartisan policy guidance, right? Um, there, you know, the old adage, if you're taking flack from both sides, you're probably doing something right. And right. that's where we're at sometimes. But it's because we offer that nonpartisan guidance. And we are not here to score votes. We are not here to prop up any members of Congress. We are here to support sportsmen and women. And that's it. Um, so it's, it was really, you know, just the pull the curtain back on my August, what it looked like was, you know, six, eight, 10 meetings a day going from office to office on the Hill, going from Republican to Democrat, Republican to Democrat all day long. Um, just talking about the values of these programs every single time. You, it doesn't matter which office, whether it's an R or D next to their, their office name, you walk in there and say, Hey, we're here to talk about these programs, archery and schools, hunter education, et cetera. And there is no opposition. It is, wow, this makes total sense. We need to get this fixed as quickly as possible. And again, you know, I think that's part of the value of the programs, but it's also part of the reputation that CSF has built in D.C. as a nonpartisan organization that is solely focused on what's good for sportsmen and women across the country. And certainly, it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, that with a, a a political climate that we live in and even to an extent where we get down to the nitty gritty of our communities in the last, I don't know, four, six, all at 10 years. Uh, it's, it's pretty divisive here in our country. And I think it's important to, to recognize leadership and, and recognize these politicians that when they do something right, I don't care what, like you said, what the letter is in front of them to acknowledge that. Because you can't browbeat people all the time because this, no one can handle that. I don't, I don't care who you are. Um, so, I, you know, tip of the cap to the fact that this was passed uh, out of the House unanimously. And then correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I feel like when it hit the Senate, one, one vote didn't go our way, but we almost had complete unanimity, uh, unanimous vote there. Yeah, so it was actually, as I mentioned, the House in their first three days passed the bill out of committee. The following week, um, week and a half, actually, the House brought this bill to the floor for a vote, and it passed under it passed 424 to 1. And then less than 24 hours later, the bill cleared the Senate unanimously. And, um, 
yeah, had it reversed, but still, one dissenting vote in all of Congress, that is unheard of. Yeah, it, I don't... In today's time and age, with everything going on, that one dissenting vote, granted, I would have loved for it to be in, unanimous across the board, but if you would have asked me, you know, leading up to the vote, if there would have been, you know, one dissenting vote, I was that absolutely not somebody is going to have something. But... Again, I think that speaks to the value of these programs, right? Everybody recognizes the importance of this and recognize that we need to be doing everything we can to facilitate these efforts. And that's why it passed, again, as I said, the House with one dissenting vote in less than 24 hours, it passed the Senate unanimous. And I think, you know, to pull the curtain back on, you know, the inside the beltway kind of stuff here, when you see letters floating around from, you know, the senators, the bipartisan senators that developed the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act on both sides of the aisle, um, some folks that are very friendly to our community, some folks that are less so friendly to our community saying, we need to fix it. These are important programs. Again, it's, it's a testament to um, what these programs mean to students across the country. And then, so the bill passed passed Congress on um, the 26th or the 27th. And then two weeks later, the President Biden signed this bill into law. Um, so that is um, critical. As I mentioned, the fact that this bill moved in a month or let's just say two months, give or take a couple of days from the time of introduction to passing the House, to passing the Senate, to being signed into law by the President, it, as I said, it's just unheard of with everything going on. It's, it's really encouraging to see, um, but it also speaks to the larger issues, or not issues, but opportunities for our community. When you look at things that Congress has passed over the last five, six, seven years, in a you know time and period that we've been gridlocked more than ever, much of the big wins have been conservation acts, and this is just another one of them, right? Obviously, this is fixing a mistake that um, should never have been there in the first place, but it's just another another win to put up in the in the win column um, for our community in a bipartisan fashion. Yeah. Um, so with that fix in place, that's for the folks that don't know, is this is this a permanent fix? Does this sunset? Is this something we have to revisit, or are those programs good? As of now, it is a permanent fix. Um, as as I mentioned, you know, sometimes issues pop up when people within the federal agencies begin implementing legislation. But I am ninety nine point nine percent certain we will not need another fix to this issue. Um, I want them a hundred percent because, as we all know, nothing is guaranteed, right? But um, the encouraging part is the Department of Education wanted. To Right, they did not want to sit on their hands and do nothing. They were not trying to obstruct. They then they reached out to Congress proactively. That here is the language that we think we need as a federal agency to restore funding to these programs. So that's encouraging to see. And then they got that, right? So there is nothing out there for them to not follow the interpretation or the intent, of Congress, the original intent of Congress. Um, so it's it's really good to see. I don't see these programs ever coming under attack again. Um, obviously, again, nothing is guaranteed, but when you could look at the vote in Congress with only one dissenting vote in both chambers, that's that's really impressive. And I think folks have realized the value of these activities. No, that's great. So 
what's next uh you know coming into this session what are what are we looking at as far as uh getting some good good legislation over the over the finish line do we have some stuff lined up um and then do you see i think you know we kind of answered this just a second ago but is there anything out there on the horizon that may present similar scenario so i think they're you know going back to the common theme here of a little bit of a common theme is, you know, Congress is gridlocked, um, as everybody knows, right? So with that, there are a number of challenges, but there are also a number of opportunities um, to advance legislation. As I mentioned, you know, Congress for the last five years, they've really focused on conservation. So there's a lot of opportunities there. The other positive thing is with the divide of Congress, um, we are able to stop bad legislation, right? DSF is really unique in our ability federally that we have not lost a single bill since CSF was about, right? At federal. Um, and that speaks to our, our nonpartisan reach on Capitol Hill. So a couple of things that we're working on right now, um, one being the Duck Stamp Modernization Act, pretty easy bill. Um, the duck hunters out there like me, it, all it says is that if you purchase an electronic federal duck stamp, you'll be able to have that electronic duck stamp on your phone for the entirety of uh, hunting season, and then you'll receive your physical stamp after the hunting. So if you like to collect your duck stamp like I do, um, you'll still get that physical stamp, but it won't be all torn up and, you know, saturated Not... with water, have a, you know, a bad signature across the front of it. Um, it'll be a nice, clean copy for you. That bill is passed both chambers. Um, the House bill passed the House and the Senate bill passed the Senate. Now we just need to find a way to get either the House to take up the Senate bill or the Senate to take up the House bill and send that one to the President's staff. Um, another big one we're working on is a bill known as Recovering America's Wildlife Act to provide dedicated funding to conserve the 12,000 species of greatest conservation need. This bill certainly, you know, it's Everybody wants to conserve these species and put money on the ground for proactive conservation. But the challenge here is that it, right now the bill is $1.3 billion annually in perpetuity. Certainly the conservation need is there, right? But as we've seen with federal spending challenges in D.C., opportunities to pass large spending bills, um, whether the need is there or not, are largely limited. So we do have our work cut out for us a little bit there. Um, but we're working through that right now um, with Chairman Bruce Westerman, the chairman of the House Natural Resource Committee, who is also the co-chair of the Congressional Sportsman's Caucus. Um, we're hoping that we can um, start moving on a House bill here in the, in the near future. We do have a Senate bill um, already introduced by past CSC co-chair Martin Heinrich. Um, we're working that. That's largely a bipartisan bill split evenly down the middle. Um, so those are the big ones we're working on. Also working on a bill known as the Range Access Act, right? As Fred, you, you talked to this earlier, Pittman-Robertson, right? We know that roughly 75 to 80% of Pittman-Robertson funds are generated by recreational shooters. So what can we do as a community to recognize the contributions of recreational shooters? Well, that's to build more shooting range. Give them more opportunities to participate in recreational shooting in a safe manner in an accessible manner, right? We have, you know, across the country, you you have um, forest service units and you have Bureau of Land Management. And by and large, these units are open to dispersed shooting. But the challenge is sometimes dispersed shooting is not accessible for everybody. If you're a younger person, if you're an older person, or you 
physical challenges, um, you know, if you hurt your knee or whatever it is, you may not be able to walk five, six, seven hundred yards off the forest road to go shoot. So let's build some shooting on Forest Service and BLM lands. And what the Range Access Act seeks to do is requires the Forest Service and BLM to have a minimum of just one, just one shooting range in each other respective districts. So those are some of the things we're working on right now. Um, we have a whole laundry list of other bills, um, but those are just some of the big ones right now that we're, we're focused on here. Folks in our community here, conversation, Taylor, uh, is, you know, you always hear people, uh, media heads and politicos, well, write your congressman, write your senator. But the stuff that like this is really important that may not get a whole lot of limelight, print media or legacy media, you know, what would be your message without, you know, advocating one way or another? Like, what, what can people do? Uh, we always talk about people need to be involved in the process. It's pretty ambiguous. How can people, you know, support their own community and get some of this stuff over, over the finish line with, with you know, community buy-in? Yeah, I think the short answer is it really does matter when you reach out to your member of Congress or if you reach out to your state legislator or your United States senator. It really does matter. Um, one of the most important things for me to do in my job when I'm trying to um, advocate for a piece of legislation and explain why this is good, the first thing that a staffer is going to ask me, well, demonstrate some in-state support. Where where is my boss's constituent? So it's important for you to do that. Um, but I also think, you know, check in with your local sportsmen and women. Have opportunities to sit down and talk about the, the challenges or the opportunities that we're facing as a community. You'd be amazed by, you know, how many good ideas within our community have just been generated from those you know, fireside chats or at deer camp, right? Let's go sit out by the bonfire and listen to some music and talk through some of this stuff. And a lot of times that has good opportunities and um, to demonstrate ideas. So I think, you know, check in to CSF's website, listen to the Sportsman's Voice podcast, um, go check out American Wildlife Conservation Partners and see what our 10 recommendations are for the community. There's a plenty of information out there for folks to, to learn from. And, um, but I think, you know, we at CSF, we have our pulse on, Everything going on across the country at the federal level and the state level, our state team is is unmatched in their ability to um, advocate for sportsmen and women. So I think CSF, obviously, I'm a little bit biased, but I think CSF should be a first starting point if they're really interested in the issues impacting them in their day-to-day fashion. Yeah, well, without a doubt, and that's perfectly said, so I will say no more on it. Taylor Schmitz, everybody, man, appreciate you time i know you got a hard hard break coming up here so i'm gonna give you some time back in your day and let you get to the good work that you do but um we'll look forward to having you again because the fight continues and uh we can bring you back on to talk about more wins and if there's points of concern uh for sure we'll get you back on and let the good people know of this audience uh what's going on and how they can help that sounds great thank you Fred. appreciate everything that you do for us at csf thanks taylor Thanks again to our guest, Taylor uh, Schmitz, for joining us. He is a very busy person down there on the hill making things happen. And as you heard, you know, constantly in, in, in meetings, going door to door, meeting with, uh, with legislators, members of, of our Congressional Sportsman's Caucus to get things done uh, on behalf of our sporting community. And goes, it should go without saying, CSF, 
is your boots on the ground, tip of the spear. You hear me talk about it every episode. You know, we're doing stuff in the state capitals, and, and Taylor is doing great work on the hill. And a lot of this stuff, the success of good legislation getting passed and, and defeating stuff that would uh, negatively impact our sporting community is done because of the relationships, because of Taylor's know-how and, and him being there constantly. It's um, probably not a household name, but he will be and know that Taylor is, is doing amazing work. I think also from that conversation, it should be said, you know, so much of our conversation in this country is, is, is hyper focused on, on the partisanness of, of where we are and we're deeply divided every day. Things are changing and everybody wants to correlate that to one political persuasion or another. We just, the days of just living and coexisting are, are certainly on pause. I hope we, we can get back to it. But, you know, as, as, as stated here, you know, the, the correction that was instituted wasn't a correction because of maliciousness, Don. It was just, they just didn't know that putting certain language in there had the drastic uh, ripple effects. And, uh, and again, Taylor and the rest of our team in the States, that's, that's what we do. We, we serve to, to educate and advocate and, and let folks know this is going to have a great result, that not so much, and here's the why. So great win, and it was, it was, it was fantastic to see it all kind of come together, and especially before, um, before things happened in the House and, and a lot of work wasn't getting done for a few weeks there. So now we got a speaker. Business continues, hopefully, for the American people and the, and the people's house. And uh, Taylor and the rest of our team can advance. Good, good policy for our community. That's this week's show, guys. As always, wishing you the best out in the field. It's the rut in a lot of places in the north. Uh, so things are getting magical in the, uh, in the woods. So uh, get home safe to your families. Hope you're able to fill some tags. And... Uh, Get ready for, for one heck of a hunting season. It's We're in the thick of it, so we'll do it all again. Thanks so much for bringing us along on your day, wherever you're at. Be safe, be kind. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks for joining us on this edition of the Sportsman's Voice podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, your support is crucial, and you can help us out right now by leaving a review, filling in those five stars where available, sharing this episode with friends and family, and engaging with us socially. CSF can be found on Facebook, Instagram, and X, formerly known as Twitter. Together, we can protect the outdoor sports we love and continue to keep you informed wherever you are. That's it for this week. Until next time, see you later.